John 17 this morning. As we think about Easter just being a couple weeks away, I started reading through the Gospels and reading through the chronological events in the life of Jesus over the last few weeks before the cross. There were several things. I was just amazed at how many things took place the day before Passover. Let me read just a few of the things that took place, and you get an idea of just how busy, how many things were going on in that last day. Starts off with the preparation for the Passover meal, and then the disciples. Well, that's kind of taking place. The disciples are kind of striving over who is the greatest, and then Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, remember, he's gearing up to be leaving this earth. And he's busy washing his disciples' feet. And then as they gather, he begins to talk about the one who would betray him. And the Last Supper is instituted and Judas leaves as the one identified. And as this Last Supper is taking place, he gives them a new commandment. Of course, we're familiar with that. A new commandment I give unto you that we are to what? Love one another and love the Lord your God, of course, with all your heart, soul, mind, and soul, and love another, one another. And then he predicts Peter's denial. And remember, this is all the day before Passover. Then there's discourses in the upper room, and then they sang a hymn and left the upper room. And then he gives them a message that's just incredible, to abide in Him. Now you think of the significance of what He is telling them in these last, really, hours before He's ready to leave. Abide in Me. And yet, He's also told them that He's leaving and they don't know where He's going. And how can we know? And when are you going to return? And we want to go with you. And all these things that are taking place... And he says, abide in me. Then he goes on his way, and then Jesus lifts his eyes up towards heaven and prays. And then that evening he prays in Gethsemane, and then, of course, he's betrayed, arrested, forsaken, and is on his way to the cross. But the thing that really is impactful, all of it's impactful, but the thing that really impacted me was in John 17 where he begins to pray right before all this takes place. And I think it's amazing that if Jesus Christ himself thought it necessary to pray for everything that was going on in his life, and he's God in the flesh, what do you think you and I should be doing? Praying. And we haven't faced a tenth or a minuscule point of what he's gone through. So, in the short 24-hour period, Jesus wears himself out on behalf of others, and it culminates into a time of prayer, where he prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers, in those three groups, and in that order. So, before we look and break those things down, let's just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the message this morning. 
Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to have your word, to hold it into our hands, to consider its words, its message. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts through it. And Lord, that we would learn from it, and that we would apply it to our hearts and our lives. And God, I pray that you would meet with us this morning, Lord, as we contemplate your word. And Lord, that we would not go out the same as what we came in, having been challenged from it. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in all of our hearts and in our lives, Lord, to draw us closer to you. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in John chapter 17, verse 1, I want to just highlight this first verse. It says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. When you think about that, that is an amazing statement. Jesus had completed the task that he had come to do. In fact, in, back in the beginning of the book in John chapter 4 and verse 34, he says, I must be about doing my Father's will. So his entire life was about not himself, but doing what his Father had set him to do on this earth. And now he's coming to the culmination of this time on earth, and he says, I have completed what you've called me to do. And now, Father, would you glorify yourself through me so that I can glorify you? In everything that he was doing, he was bringing attention not to himself, but to his heavenly Father, God the Father in heaven. And so we see right away in the beginning of these verses that, first of all, he takes time to pray for himself. And that's amazing to me, this the entire concept, because remember, this is not just an ordinary man. This is God incarnate. This is God in the flesh. And He's the same as God in heaven, except for He's on earth. Everything that the every bit of power that God the Father has, He has, and yet He's praying for He's praying to the Father for Himself. So let me begin reading in the first five verses of John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave Him authority over all flesh so that He may give eternal life to everyone you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. To me, that is just like, wow. I'm sitting there reading this last night, and I'm sitting there in the presence of another pastor, and I'm like, have you ever preached through this before? Why have I never preached through this before? This is amazing stuff. But two things here. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. It was always about His Father. You see this in Philippians chapter 2 where he humbles himself even to the point of death, the death on a cross, a despicable, despised, uh, burglar, thief, murderer's death. Because he was a humble man. He was God in the flesh. And he says, glorify your son so that I may glorify you. He wanted everybody's attention not to be on himself, but to be on God the Father. Now I was looking up that word glorify. What does it really mean to glorify it means to boast or give honor, praise, and admiration of. So he says, Lord, God, if you would just put a little bit of your light on me and I can reflect it back to you, and then everybody will honor you, they will praise you, they will admire you for what you have done. What an incredible plan that God had. 
sending his son to go, on, go down to the earth, to leave the splendor of heaven, to go down to earth, and to represent his heavenly father so that the hearts of men would turn towards God the Father. What a remarkable plan that he's set into motion here. So he says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And then he says, glorify me in your presence. And remember what he said back in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His entire life was about shedding the light that was on himself back to the Father. And he says, if you'll glorify me, I want people to glorify you through that. What's he saying here? I just want to be a reflection. I want to be a mere image of who you are, God, so that they'll look to you, so that they will praise you, so that they will admire you, so that they will honor you, God. That's amazing to me. He says, I've glorified you on this earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He says, by my obedience, you're a glorified God. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, what's that tell you about the deity of Jesus Christ? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, three in one, distinctly separate, yet one. And he says, glorify me with that same glory that we had together before the world existed. Isn't that amazing? Because he had come down to earth, he had left the presence of his heavenly Father to come down to earth, and now he's saying, I'm going back to him. And that glory is going to be reunited all over again. Is that not incredible? I mean, think about that. And it's all for the Heavenly Father. That's an incredible prayer. What do we pray for? What are 90% of our prayers consisted of? Big toe? Hypothetically speaking. All the little problems that we face on this earth. Even though over and over God's word reminds us that everything that we face on this earth is just temporary. If we're a child of God, we know that our eternal state, all those things are going to be done, over, vanquished, done. And yet we worry about those things, don't we? Jesus didn't bring about the fact that, oh no, I'm going to be a hurting unit. No. He's like, God... I'm going to be back with you again, and we're going to be experiencing that glory that we had before the world ever came. That's incredible. Think about that, if you can. That's hard to fathom. Then number two, in this next section, Jesus not only prays for himself, but now he prays for his disciples. And he prays, I think, for at least three things, if not more. But I want to read this passage here, beginning with verse 6. He says, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. So what's he saying here? He hasn't even started praying for them just yet. He's saying, Lord, you know that these guys that you gave me, I worked with them. Everything that you gave me, I gave to them. They have come to this conclusion where they have matured. They understand that everything that I've given them is from you. Now we've got to deal with this because I'm not going to be here any longer. Verse 9 says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. 
He says, all these things that he had gone through, they're not, they're not, it's not even for me. They're not even mine. They're yours, God. And I'm praying, I want, I want to pray for them. Everything I have is yours. And everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. What a word picture he is giving them right here. He says, God, I'm leaving. And I'm about to go to you. And I want you to protect them. And he's saying to these disciples, these men that he has worked with, that he's gathered around, that the Father has given him to work with. He says, God, keep them unified. Keep them as one, just like you and I are one. What's the tendency of man left to themselves? Think about that for a moment. Man left to himself is what? Selfish. All about me, myself, and I. Us three, we're good, we're good buddies. And the bottom line is, he says, they need to be unified. So the first thing he prays for them is for protection and unity. He goes on here, verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. He says, while I was with them, verse 12, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He said, God, while I'm here, I was able to protect them and guard them and, and watch over them. But he says, I'm leaving. But Father, you can still protect them. Keep them protected. Keep them unified. Keep them together. Why? And let me just say this as it relates to the church and to the body of Christ. We are stronger together than we are separately apart from each other. We need to be one. You've heard us talking about this over the last year. God loves unity. He loves when we go forward in unity. We are stronger together than any of us are by ourselves. We need each other. Do you understand that? I mean, think about this. If God himself, down and incarnate as man, living as Jesus Christ, on this earth says, these guys who I have invested in immensely, who I have taught, who I have protected them while I'm with them, and no longer with them, God, they need your protection. They need your unity If they need it, what's that say for you and I? We need it desperately in the body of Christ. And now he says, verse 13, Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have have my joy completed in them. So he prays for them to have joy. A completed joy. Why? Because they're about doing their father's business. Let me just say this. When you and I are in unity with each other and we're going forward in the direction that God has for us to go and we're experiencing the the closeness of being a family, we have joy because we're excited for each other. You know, I think that's why God says in his word, rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Why? Because we are one. If it was important for his disciples to be one, it's important for you and I to be one. It's important for us to encourage one another, to love one another, 
to lift each other up when we're down. At times, cry with one another and weep with one another. And at other times, pray with one another. Encourage one another. We need to have that kind of unity, that kind of bond that God can work in and through. But in both verses 10 and verse 15, he makes it very clear. Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We can't get out of the world yet. And by the way, I don't think you should want to get out of the world. We have a job to do. And the job that we have to do, just like Jesus had a job to do for his father, then one of the jobs that we have to do for our father is be a testimony of him. To bring glory to him through our obedience, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He said, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. What I'm asking you to do is protect them while they're in the world. And while you're protecting them, they're going to continue to go on and walk in obedience and bring glory to you through their, their, through their daily walk. I don't think anything's changed for you and I in the, that regard. I think the same command that was given to the disciples is the same command that's given to us. To be an example of Jesus Christ in the life that we have here on this earth. So he says, I'm coming to you, and I want them to have joy. I've given them your word. And yes, the world hates them at times. Uh, I remember, was it about a year and a half, two years ago, watching the news, and our great governor of our state saying, if you're a conservative Christian, get out of here. We don't want you. I'm not shocked. When you stand for God, and you stand for truth, and you stand for righteousness, there is going to be a world that doesn't like you because of it. Stand for what's right. Because we have the prayer of we have the protection of God the Father on us as we do that. And verse 16, which is also true of us, says, They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Philippians remind us that we are just what? Citizens of heaven. We're, we're, we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're just passing through. And on the timeline of eternity, our little speck of time on earth, just a little, you know, on, on the time frame, and we're just here for a little while. Our home is in heaven. They're not of this world. God, these disciples, they're not of this world. They're just here for a little while. But while they're here, would you protect them? Would you keep them unified? Would you give them joy? And then he says, verse 16, They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Verse 17, Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. That word sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. They were given a task. And he says, God help them fulfill it. So he prayed for unit, for protection. He prayed for unity. He prayed for joy. He prayed for sanctification by truth. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them. I set myself apart for them, so that they also may be sanctified by truth. He prays for their sanctification. Wow, Jesus, after spending his earthly ministry serving them, ministering to them, he just prays for them as he's leaving. My how we need to be praying to our Heavenly Father. For ourselves. Anyone need strength? Anybody need God's power to be at work in and through you? Pray. 
How many of us need prayer? He prayed for each other. Pray. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the last section of this text, in verses 20 through 26, and begins to pray for all believers everywhere. Verse 20 says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Wait a minute, let's stop right there for a minute. There's a purpose and a reason behind the unity? Hmm. Think about this just for a moment. This is what came to my mind as I was thinking about this. What happens when you have seven people and they're given a a question that may not necessarily be just clear as day, but they all have an opinion, they all have a, a rational answer for it, and they all have a good basis for their answer. Yes, person number one, they said this, and person number two says this, and person number three is real similar to number one, but yet it's kind of different, so he has his own, own answer. And person number four, the next thing you realize is that you've got seven people giving seven different answers. Who do you believe? I mean, this guy has a good rational answer, and this guy says my answer is based on experience and what I've come to understand, and this guy says, well, I've, I've read other people who got on before me, and you know it makes sense, and I think it works out, and... The, and they all have their great rationale. They all have understanding of what they think the answer is. But what happens when you have seven people given seven different answers? Who do you believe? You're not quite sure, are you? I mean, I know him well, and I, he's got a proven track record, so I think I, think, I, think I can kind of lean where he's going. And then the person over here says, well, I, 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 like, I like person number two over here because I've known them for 30 years and they've never led me wrong, right? I mean, so far, right? So uh, I'm going to... And then also because these guys are not unified, what happens to those that are looking for the right answer? They're all on a different page, right? Now think about this. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may be, believe you sent me. Why? What's he saying? When we have all the same message and the world is looking at us? No, this makes sense. Because we're all on the same page. You know what I think denominations do? They divide. You know what I think religions do? They divide. They cause discord. Why do we have 40,000 plus registered denominations in the United States? I learned this this last year. Back 45 years ago or thereabouts, there was only 4,000 registered denominations in the United States. Now today there are over 40,000. Because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody thinks they've got the answer. Everyone knows better than everyone else. And the world looks at it and says, hmm, who's right? I think they're all wackos. And he says, Father, keep them unified. Because if these guys are unified in their message, then everyone looks at them, they ask him, they get the same answers when they ask him. And when this person asks him, they get the same ask, answers when they ask them. And when they are unified, the world will believe. 
that I am who I say I am. And I've come to do what I said I've come to do. You think that unity is not important? Think again. Unity is of utmost importance. He says there in verse 21, May they all be one as you, Father, and are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. What's this glory? The glory of the Father. The praise that it gives to them. The admiration that they deserve. The honor that he deserves. And then he says in verse 23, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. Wow. He prays that for all the believers who are left. He knows he's about to go back to the Father, be reunited with his Father, to experience that glory that they had before the world was even created. But he says, as I go, Father, would you protect them? Would you give them unity? Would you give them joy? God, would you just be them? And then he prays for the same thing for the believers. He prays for those who believe, verse 20, that they may be one, verse 21, that they would see his glory, verse 24, and that his love would be in them, verse 26. Verse 25 says, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. He says, Father, I want them not just to believe, not just to be one, not just to behold his glory and to reflect it, but that his love would be seen through them. Isn't that awesome? This is the message that he gave right before he went to the cross. Why? Because the cross was going to tell another story. All this that he had given his life for, his earthly ministry for, was now going to come to a close. As far as his earthly ministry, he's going to heaven. But the work has been planted. The seed has been planted. The work has been set in motion. And guess what? The work has not stopped. It hasn't stopped. That work continues on in who? You and me. And I think those very things that he prayed for, for his disciples, are the same things that we need in the church today. Amen? That message has not changed. That message still needs to go forth. Anyone who's a believer needs to be praying for their fellow believer. Anybody that's a believer needs to be unified with Jesus Christ. Remember? He says that that they may be one with me, because I am one with you. So as we are one with Jesus, we're one with the Father, and we're unified on the same page. And then we begin to reflect his glory, not our own. And that the world would see our love and be seen. And it would point the world to Jesus which ultimately repoints them to, G- to, to the Heavenly Father. We have a work to do, and it starts with prayer. We often say that there's something for everyone to do, and there really is. 
If you're here today, there's a way that you can be involved, that you be involved in the ministry of Harvest Bible Fellowship and in the greater ministry of Jesus Christ. You know where it starts? Prayer. I've said for years, you may not be able to go out and do, but you can come and pray. And you should if you can't. Why? Because we're one. You know, not all of you can lift the heavy stuff. Let the younger guys do that now. Let the younger guys climb the ladders. But you can be here and encourage them. You can be here and hold the ladders. You can be here to show them how to do it. I miss Lynn Platten. I really, really miss him. I can remember him being in Florida, and I took a picture of this cobbled up wire mess that was in the basement of my house, and I just snapped a picture with it with my phone, sent it to him, and I said, what is this? He responds back, a mess. <laughs> Thanks, Len, got that. I said, what is it? And he types right back and says, it's us and such. I said, how can I get rid of this thing? Cut this and this and this and tie these two off and you'll be okay. He was right. The guy knew everything about everything. When it came to you know all that kind of stuff with the house and so forth. I love that. Working together. Because we're family. Coming together, doing the will of the Father. Together. And I thought to myself, when we're doing these things, Len wasn't at a point where he'd want to climb the ladder. He tried to climb the ladders. But I didn't need him to climb the ladders. I needed his wisdom. I can climb the ladder still. But he was willing. Folks, that's where all of us need to get to. To where you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Are you willing to do it? But I think it starts right here with the example that Jesus Christ left us to pray. He prayed for himself, then prayed for those leaders, per se, the, deacon, the, the, the disciples, and then, he pr- and then he prayed for all the believers. I think that's a good place to start for all of us. Pray for ourselves that we would be who God would want us to be, that we would be about being obedient to the, the task that God has called us to. Pray for the leaders around you. Pray for those that you're working with. Pray for those that you're investing in that you're mentoring, that you're discipling. Say, well, I'm not doing that yet. Get started. And then number three, pray for your fellow believers. That all of us be unified. That we'd be protected in this world that we live. That we would have joy. And that we would show God's love and bring him glory. That's some good stuff. It starts with unity. I pray that God would give us that as a body. Amen? Let's pray.